Well, good morning, church. So good to be and worship with you this morning. I was, uh, I was thinking of the songs that we sang, and I was having flashbacks. Um, and uh, I remembered uh, Better Is One Day when I learned that song. I learned to play it on the guitar, and I thought like I was just the coolest uh, worship leader slash youth pastor ever because I could go up and down on the guitar neck and uh, play that song because there's a way to play it up and down. Brandon, I, I mean, I was like, I, I bought, well, Brandon's gone, he's not here. I bought a thing called an Ebo, uh, which is like, uh, it makes your guitar sound like a violin because that's what uh, the group that wrote that song did. And I was, I just thought that I was the coolest thing. And that was 1995. And uh, so I was sitting there thinking of that and how foolish I looked up there uh, with my Dana electric guitar trying to play that Ebo thing. And then I went to Hosanna, and I was like, yes, finally an Easter song that's not out of a hymnal. And we would sing that song to death, especially on Easter. And, uh, and, 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 and as a worship leader, I was doing that. And then the last song, I was like, man, we fast forward just a little bit. And I would kill that song on the acoustic guitar. Let me just say, I wore that song flat out in our youth group. Like, they were sick of that song. I mean, I played that song to death. So I was like, I was just having like a little youth group student pastor moment up here. I was wishing for the overhead projector. I really was. I was like, man, I remember the kids, the kids used to fight over who was going to move the stuff. And it was always upside down or left to right. It was always backwards. And, uh, and I was like, man, I just, it was, it was a good moment. So thanks, James and the worship team. Let's give them a hand for leading us in worship. Um, they do such a good job. Uh, Lindsay and all them up here, y'all just do such a, a great job, and I uh, appreciate you leading us in worship. You know, we've been thinking about and hearing about and uh, seeing a lot on Facebook about the revival happening in Asbury, and, uh, and Asbury uh, has Wesley roots. I'm a Wesley kind of person. I love Asbury. I love the roots there, uh, and I just want you to know um, from a pastor's uh, perspective that revival doesn't happen up here. I want you to hear that. Revival does not happen up here. Revival does not happen uh, in one person. Revival happens in the hearts of God's people. And so revival can happen anywhere. It's happening right now in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's spreading to all Lee University, all different places. But revival can happen right here in little old Prestonsburg, Kentucky, if it happens in the hearts of people. And so I want you to know that. I don't want you to feel like well, I can't go to Wilmore, Kentucky. You don't have to go to Wilmore, Kentucky. You can go to Wilmore, Kentucky, and you can experience it. I encourage you to do so. But I want you to know that revival happens in the hearts of God's people. And it happens when God's people chase after the love of God like they've never chased after it before. And that's what students began to do in that chapel service. They began to chase after the heart of God like they never chased after the heart of God before. They began to repent. They began to confess. They began to pray. They began to put God before themselves. And revival began to happen in their hearts. And it spread like wildfire. And so it can happen in our hearts. But I want you to remember, it doesn't start up here. It starts out there with you. So I just want you to know that I feel like you need to understand from a pastor's perspective, and I'm super excited about what's going on. Don't get me wrong. Super excited about what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky. And um, I was going to go Friday, but it was cold, and I didn't want to wait outside in line. So I'm just going to be real so I can watch it online. So 
Um, just a couple things before we jump into the message this morning. Um, uh, small groups are starting this today, uh, so groups start today, and it's not too late to jump into one, and uh, you can sign up today, just uh, fill out one of these cards, and if you um, sign up for uh, one of today's uh, groups, ones that start on Sunday, like uh, I know Michael Ellis is at the Allens, they're meeting at James' house, start today at 2 o'clock, uh, also um, the Parsleys are starting today at 6 o'clock, so if you sign up for one of those two, come see me, and I'll get you uh, pointed in the right direction if that's one of the groups you want to sign up for, but I encourage you get plugged into a group. Uh, If you haven't done so already, get plugged into a group. If you haven't heard from a group leader or if you're not sure where to go, come see me. We'll figure it out and get you plugged in so you can join this week. Second thing I just want you to know about before you leave is every week out there on the... um, on the counter, uh, right by the little basket, there are uh, weekly readings for the Book of Mark. And so we've been going through the Book of Mark. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. And you can uh, jump in and you can just be reading along. And uh, I've just found it so um, fulfilling to read the Book of Mark and then talk about it on Sunday. And, uh, and so that way you're getting the whole Gospel. You're not just getting the parts that we've kind of I picked out to share with you, but you're getting the entire Gospel. And I don't know if you've realized it or not, but the theme in the Book of Mark, especially the first half of the book, It's all about the power and the authority of Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. And Jesus shows up and he says, hey, the kingdom of God is coming and I'm the guy that's going to bring it here. And I have the power and I have, I'm I'm fully God, but I'm fully human. And I have the power to meet the needs of your people. I have the power to rescue you. I have the power to restore you. I have the power for you to be in right relationship with God, but it begins with me. And so that's kind of the theme of the gospel of Mark. And and so today we're going to be hanging out in Mark chapter 6. And looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. And uh, before we do, um, let's just pray. And let's invite God to lead us in our conversation through the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you so much for today. God, I really thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that in your word, it has everything that we need. Everything that we need for salvation. Everything that we need to live the Christian life. And so my prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would show up. Your Holy Spirit would move uh, within your people. Uh, and it would encourage us as we read your word. That we'd find out new and exciting things about who you are. And how you want, uh, what you want for us. And, uh, and Lord, um, thanks for loving us in the ways that you do. And God, you love us in so many, uh, and, and with so much um, love that we can't even put words around it. And so thank you for that. And thank you for uh, loving us enough to die on the cross for us. But not just to die on the cross for us, but to raise from the dead so that we might have life and have it to its fullest. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, if you've experienced uh, this or not, but one of the most difficult places to live out our Christian life is in the places where the people know us best, right? Like one of the hardest, most challenged and difficult places to live out our Christian life is the places where people know us the best. It's our homes. It's our workplaces. uh, It's our friends' homes. It's any place where people know us really well. And it's so difficult to live out the Christian life in those places because those people know us so well. And for many of us, that place is our home. For many of us, the place that is most challenging for us to live the Christian life is where we live, our home. And our home is where where our real self comes out. Our home is uh, where our real self comes out the most often and the most authentic and the most real. It's at home where we see each other's sins and it's at home where we see each other's weaknesses. And so it's really hard for us to live out the Christian life when everyone at home uh, knows us. And what I've realized is it's, it's hard for us to live out the Christian life in our homes, but it's even uh, more challenging or more difficult to live out our Christian life at home when our home is a mixture of believers and unbelievers. 
That when there's people in our home that are like us and are Christians and are saved, and there's people that are, are not like us that live in our home that are not believers and are not Christians and are not saved. And, and you see, when Christ is the center of your life, but not the center of your home, well, that can bring division, and that can bring heartache, and that can bring frustration, and it can be very difficult for us to live out the Christian life in that environment when it's divided, when it's a house divided. And part of that, I think, is because, well, we're sinful people, and we do sinful things, and, and, and so part of it is that, but I think part of it is the fact of the, just simply the fact of the gospel itself. And, and the gospel, we know, or hopefully you know, that the gospel brings salvation to those who believe, but it also can bring division between those who are believers and those who are non-believers, that there's a natural cause and effect that, 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 that the good news or salvation uh, and the gospel can bring division between those who believe and those who don't believe. And when you take a stand for Christ, or when you say yes to Jesus, those who do not follow Christ... Well, they can feel uncomfortable. It can cause uh, awkward moments. It can cause uh, them to even be threatened by your faith. And so it's not easy for a believer to live in a home with a non-believer. It's not easy for a believer to live in a non-Christian home. And even Jesus, and we'll see that this morning's passage, that even Jesus ran into this in his hometown of Nazareth. So Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. Uh, it's where Mary and Joseph settled. It's where, uh, where Jesus uh, played in the streets. It's where Jesus maybe played kickball or kicked the can or stickball or whatever kids played back then. Uh, it's where he learned. His dad taught him uh, the art of carpentry. Now, carpentry could have meant working with wood. It could have meant working with stone. It could have been a, he could have been a builder. Uh, we believe most likely that he worked with wood and he built home furniture, um, but that's where he learned his craft. It was in Nazareth. And, 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 and in today's scripture, we're going to see that Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by the townspeople that he grew up with, that he was rejected by the people that he did life with as a young man, that he was rejected. We'll even see that he was rejected by his relatives and even by his own family. And so let's turn to Mark chapter 6 together, and we're going to look at verses, like I said, 1 through 6. And uh, as we do, um, I just want you to pay attention to what's going on and pay attention to uh, how uh, Jesus must have felt as his own hometown rejected him. And so here's where it says, it begins, uh, and I think that as we read this, I think there'll be some valuable truths that will help us. If you find yourself struggling to live out the Christian life in your home, that maybe you'll find some truths to helping you with that, especially if you have folks that you're living in your home that don't believe. And so here's what it says, Mark, again, telling the story. He's telling Peter's story. We talked about that in the first week. And, uh, and here's what he says. He says, Jesus left there. So where was there? There was the place that he just came from where uh, we, if we read in chapter 5, he'd healed some people. He, he raised a girl back to life. She was dead, and he raised her to life. Pretty amazing. And um, he, there was a woman that had uncontrollable bleeding, touched the hem of his robe, and she was healed as well. And so Jesus is leaving that place. And he went to his hometown, which was Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And where did this man, these are the people in the town saying, where did this man get these things, they asked. 
What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph Jr. and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He, being Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, you got to understand that the verses leading up to today's passage, that Jesus, like I said, he had been performing some pretty amazing and extraordinary miracles. And every one of these miracles revealed to the people that were watching his power and his identity. Like Jesus is trying to get people to see who he is and what he's there for. And he calmed the wind and the rain. We, we read that last week and we, we studied that and talked about that. And, and then right after that, he cast out, when they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they get off the boat and he casts out a legion of demons. And then right after that, he heals a woman that has incurable uh, bleeding. And then he raises a 12-year-old girl back to life. So Jesus has done some pretty amazing miracles, some things that people hadn't seen before. And you can imagine, just like Asbury is the talk of today, and you can't go on Facebook, you can't scroll down very far before you read about it. Well, if Facebook was alive back then, you would be reading about these miracles. You would be seeing selfies of people taking pictures. This is the girl that Jesus raised from the dead, and you'd be taking selfies with it. And you would, you would just hear on and on about these miracles. And so word has spread about the miracles that Jesus did. And every one of these miracles, again, is demonstrating Jesus' authority, that he is the son of God and also his power. And however, though, despite these powerful miracles, not everyone believed. Like you've watched on Facebook and there's some skeptics out there about what's going on at Asbury. There's some people out there, you know, dissing and, and talking bad about what's happening in Asbury. The same thing was true back here. That there were people that didn't believe. There were people that were skeptical. There were people that were like, I don't know about this. And especially those that knew Jesus the best. His own relatives and his own family were questioning him. And I can relate. Like I can relate to this story so well about how Jesus felt. Because um, my first position in ministry was uh, I was a student pastor. I was hired to be a student pastor at my home church, the church I grew up in in Brandon, Florida. We were just talking about that. Uh, and and I, um, I, I grew up in that church. My father happened to be the pastor of that church at one time. Uh, and then when my father passed away, my mom, we all moved back to Brandon, and my, dad, and my mom went on staff at that church. So not only was my dad on staff for a certain period of time, but then my mom came and she was on staff for a certain point of time. And then now here I am, and I'm joining the staff as the student pastor. And, uh, and, and it was so hard. Like I get Jesus' frustration because it was so hard to do ministry because everyone remembered me as one of three things. They either remembered me as Rich's son. That was my dad's name, Rich. Uh, they remembered me as Rich's son. They remembered me as Pam's son, my mom. Or they remembered me as the kid that sat in the back row that caused problems and threw airplanes during my dad's sermons. So that's how they remembered me. And it was so hard to do ministry. It was so difficult for me to get any traction, to get people to buy into what I was doing because that's who they saw me as. 
They saw me as little seventh grade Rick Connor, or they saw me as college Rick Connor, or they saw me, like I said, as that kid in the back row holding hands. I got caught for everything. Like if I held hands with my girlfriend during church, my mom knew about it, like so-and-so, because there's always that lady in the church that would say everything, would tell my parents, you know, your son was holding hands with the girlfriend. And so, I, I mean, that's how they remembered me. And it was so hard for me to get traction. It was so difficult that it ended up, I spent a year and a half there and I said, you know what? Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not, I'm not Rich's son. I'm not Pam's son. I'm me. And God's called me. And so I went and, and found another church and did ministry uh, somewhere else in a new position. So I get this. I get what Jesus was experiencing in this moment, but I wasn't doing miracles, right? Like there wasn't signs and wonders going on in my ministry, except for I was learning better as one day and I thought I was rocking it out. But besides that, um, there was not a whole lot of signs and wonders going on. And so I thought, well, what can we learn? Like, what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from what's happening? And I think the first thing I want us to learn is this, that you, and I say you, and I point my finger at you, because I want you to understand you are called to share the gospel. You are called to share the gospel. Look at verses one and two again. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by who? His disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was teaching about the gospel, the good news. And many who heard him were amazed. And so in these verses, Jesus is doing uh, Jesus is the one doing the teaching, right? He's the one doing the preaching. But notice that his disciples are with him. He takes his disciples, the 12, with him everywhere he goes. Why? Because he's training them up and he's getting ready to send them out. As a matter of fact, in the next couple of verses, that's what he does. He sends them out. So he's training them up. And you see, as followers of Jesus, and if you've said yes to Jesus, if that's you, then let me just tell you, clear the air, you are a follower of Jesus. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus. And it says, you see, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to do the things that Jesus did. That's what a follower of Jesus is, Christian, little Christ, little Jesus. We're to do the things that Jesus did. And one of the main things that Jesus did over and over and over again was to share the gospel with other people. And so you and I are called to share the gospel. And now you may never stand up in a bunch of people uh, and, and preach or teach like this. You may never do that. But each, each of us is called to share the gospel with people that God brings into our lives. Like, I don't know if you thought about this or not, but God brings people into your life. And he does it for a reason and a purpose. And he wants you to share the gospel with them. So that's number one. You are called to share the gospel which would be amazing if it weren't for the next point. And the next point is this, the gospel is offensive to people, right? The gospel is offensive to people. And if no one was offended by the gospel, we would all be out there sharing the gospel every chance we got. Like you would never have to say, well, Pastor Rick, you don't understand. I don't, I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid people reject me. I don't know what to say. Like if everyone was saying yes to the gospel, if the gospel was not offensive, we would all be out there sharing the gospel. If people wanted to hear the gospel, and if every time we shared the gospel, people fell to their knees and confessed their sin and put their faith in Jesus right there on the spot, you couldn't stop any one of you from going out there and sharing the gospel. But the reality is, is that the gospel is offensive to people. It's always been that way, and it will always be that way until Jesus comes back. And you might be wondering, well, 
Let's talk about that. Why is the gospel offensive to people? How is it offensive to people? Well, in our scripture, we find three reasons right there for why the gospel is offensive to people. And the first one is this, that people reject the source of the gospel. We see this in verse two with the where question. What, is they, what do they say? They say, where did this man get these things? Where did Jesus get these things? The people, they're amazed. Like they're amazed and they're in awe at the signs and wonders, and they're amazed and in awe at Jesus' teaching because they never heard things that he was saying, but they questioned the source of his teaching. They're like, where did he get these things from? We're impressed. We like what he's saying, but, but we're not willing to admit that his teachings came from God. Like, they weren't willing to go that far. They weren't willing to say that this was the Son of God. They're like, they're still wondering where in the world did he get this information from? Because if they admitted that it was from God, then they'd have to submit to it. And they didn't want to submit to it. They didn't want to turn the other cheek. They didn't want to pray for their enemies. They didn't want to love others as they love themselves. They didn't want to do those things. And it's the same way with us. Like we, we fall into the same kind of uh, habits. When you share the gospel with someone, they may dismiss it as foolishness. They may say, yeah, I'm not interested. Oh, that's a bunch of garbage. I don't believe in that. Or, or, or they may even think of it as, well, that's one way to God, one of many. Like there are other ways to get to God. We don't have to go with your route. Or they may just say, well, you know what? That's just your personal belief, right? Like that's just what you believe. I don't believe, but you believe. If that's your truth, that's fine, but that's not my truth. But they will not accept it as coming from God because they don't accept the source. Why? Because the God, if the gospel is truly God's revelation, then they are accountable to it. And so they reject the source, even if the people, uh, even as the people of Nazareth did. They knew Jesus, and yet they reject the message. The second thing that we see here is that people reject the content of the gospel. They reject the content. We see this in the what question. What, they say, what's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? They're saying the same things that those people said to me and Brandon, like, isn't that, isn't that Jesus? Like, where did he get this information from? Like, he was just building furniture a couple of weeks ago. He built my table. He built my end tables. Like, he built, my, he built some stuff in my house, my bowls. He made my bowl. I got my bowls from him. And they're like, where... Did he get this? What, what's the wisdom that has been given to him? And Mark even says that they were amazed, but their amazement didn't result in faith. They were amazed at both Jesus' wisdom and his miracles, but they still rejected the content of his teaching. They still couldn't buy in. They still didn't know what to think of it all. And, and word, like I said, word had spread like wildfire about his miracles and about his teachings and the things he'd been doing. And now they had even heard him in person in their own synagogue. But instead of exercising faith, instead of surrendering, they seemed very suspicious of it all. And isn't that the way that people today uh, act or respond to the gospel? Like maybe you've experienced this when you became a believer and maybe your family or your friends weren't believers, you became a believer and now they begin to treat you with suspicion. Like you were super excited. You won't believe what happened this Sunday. I gave my life to the Lord. I said, yes, I raised my hand. I came to the altar. I prayed. Uh, my life is different. And they're like, is it really? 
Like, are you sure? Like, is that really what happened? Or they may even say, oh, you got religion, right? Like maybe they said, you got religion. Or maybe they're afraid. Maybe they're a little afraid of you because now they're like, well, he's going to, or she's going to try and convert me as if I need converting or anything. Like they're afraid of you. And the gospel is offensive to people. And so people reject. They reject both the source and they reject the content. But what it really comes down to, and I really want you to hear this because I think if we can get over this, um, we'll be more apt to share the gospel, is what it really comes down to is people reject the person of Jesus. Like when you share the gospel, people aren't rejecting you. They're really not. They're rejecting Jesus. And so we got to get over it. Like we got to get over being afraid to share the gospel. Well, what if they reject me? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And that's exactly what happens here. And so we move from the where and the what to the question of who. And we see this clearly in verse three. It says, they begin to question. They say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary or Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters, like aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. Like that first time I read that a long time ago, they took offense. I'm like, why? Like, this is Jesus. Why are they taking offense to him? Why are they so offended by what he said? And they're offended by this man, this man who they grew up with, this man that they helped raise, this man that they maybe played with, this man that they maybe they played in the band with in high school, or this, this man that, they, that maybe they built furniture together, or they bought furniture. This, such a, this, this man who is now demonstrating such miraculous wisdom and powers, and they're questioning, they're rejecting the person. They're like, isn't this the carpenter? Like, Jesus wasn't trained to be a rabbi or teacher. Like, I don't remember him going to rabbi school. I don't remember him following the rabbi around. He was a carpenter. Like, Mary, Mary's husband, Joseph, was a carpenter. Just like his dad, he was a carpenter. And Jesus followed in his trade. And it wasn't until Jesus was 30 years old that he suddenly begins his public ministry of teaching and preaching. And so they're like, isn't he the carpenter? And so... They are offended at his teaching them about the kingdom of God and, and because well, he's just a carpenter. And then they say this next. They say, isn't that Mary's son? Now, check it out. That was offensive in and of itself because you didn't call a son by his mom's name. The right thing to do was call a son by his dad's name. And normally, that's how you would refer to him. He should have been called Joseph's son. And, and many biblical scholars believe that at this point, Joseph has died. He's no longer on the scene. And, uh, and so, you, you, but you would still refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph, even if he wasn't alive. And so this, this phrase is a little awkward. It sticks out. And, and of course, there have been rumors. And, and we know of the rumors that Jesus was born out of wedlock and that he was an illegitimate child. And so this may have been a little bit of a dig on Mary or even on Jesus, like reminding Jesus, hey, you're a legitimate son. You got to remember that. You're adopted. You, you, you don't, you're, Joseph's really not your dad. And, and so they mention that. And then they go on and they say, not only is this the son of Mary, but they say, and, and isn't, this, isn't this Jesus' brothers? Like they're here with us. The brothers are all, uh, they're all there. They're in the crowd. They, they are even given good biblical names. They got, you got, um, you got James, you got Joseph Jr., you got Simon, and you got 
Judas, which was also nicknamed Jude. And so you've got all these people, and, and, and we know that at least two of the four brothers became believers. Like we know that James, who wrote the book of James in the Bible, uh, also became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Like he, he was a, a, a force to be reckoned with when the first church launched. And then we know of Judas, who was also known as Jude. Uh, we believe that he wrote the book of Jude. Uh, and, uh, and so he also became a believer. We're not sure what happened to Joseph Jr. We're not sure what happened to Simon. But it says, and isn't that Jesus' brothers here? And then they say his sisters. So not only did Jesus have four brothers, but he had some sisters. We're not sure how many. It's a lot of people believe he had maybe three. So he had a big family. And they're right there in the crowd. And they're like, isn't that the brother of these guys and the sisters. And so, again, they're taking offense to Jesus because that's the main point here in verse three is that the people took offense. And so they asked the question, casting doubt on the person of Jesus, on his character and on his credentials. And so what we see in verses two and three is an all-out wholesale rejection of the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming. Like the boy from Nazareth has come home and he's sharing the gospel and they completely, completely reject it. And, and they reject the source of his teaching. They reject the content. And most importantly, they reject the person, Jesus himself. And so as we share the gospel with others, this will always be a challenge. It will always be a challenge for us when we share the gospel because the gospel is offensive to people. Some people are offended by the gospel and people don't want to be confronted. People, they don't want to be told that they are sinners or that they, have, uh, that they have sin issues in their lives. People, they don't want to be told that they are in need of rescuing because that pride gets in the way. I don't need any help. I'll do this on my own. I don't need no Jesus in my life. And they reject it because they don't want to be told they're in need of a savior. And as far as the person of Jesus is concerned, People are quite happy to accept him as a good man. Oh, I know Jesus. He was a good man, or he was a wise teacher, or maybe even a prophet. I might give him prophet status. He may have been a prophet, but they don't want to acknowledge Jesus as God's own son, because that would mean that they are accountable to him, and they would need to follow him as their Lord and Savior. So people are often rejecting Jesus. Again, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And it's hard to share the gospel because it's so offensive to people. And the third thing I want you to know is this, that it's toughest at home. It's toughest at home. It's hard for us to share the gospel in our own home because that's where your family knows you the best, right? Like, uh, like I think that's what Jesus was getting at in verse four when he said this phrase. He said, a prophet is not without honor except for in his own town, among his relatives and among his own home. When I left the church in Brandon, that's exactly what I said. They said, why are you leaving? I said this, that passage. I said, it's impossible to be a prophet in your own home. And this was a common proverb of the day. And we have a similar one today that we say, we say familiarity breeds contempt. And, and which doesn't always mean actual content or being spiteful, but we have a tendency to downplay. And we have a tendency to take for granted those that we know the best. And that's why it's hard to share the gospel in our own home because they know us the best and we often downplay it. For example, people will pay hundreds of dollars today, which I think is crazy, hundreds of dollars today to go see a particular singer, a famous singer, perform in a concert. Whereas people in that person's family, 
probably just take it for granted that their family, that their family member's famous or they can sing. And, and I can guarantee you that they certainly aren't going to shell out $100 or $200 to go to their concert. And they might not even sit down for a free concert at home. But this principle cuts even deeper in the spiritual matters. Because some of the hardest people to reach are the members of your own family. Because they know you so well. Like, they've seen you in your underwear. They've seen you. They've changed your diaper. They've seen you in your ugliest moments. They know your past. They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. They've seen you at your best, and they've also seen you at your worst. And it's really, really hard to persuade a family member to accept Jesus into their lives. It's hard. It's hard to bring an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving parents or an unbelieving brother or sister to Christ. It's so hard. Why? Because they know you. They know you warts and all. They know everything about you. And another reason I think why it's hard or tougher at home to share the gospel is because unbelief is a limiting factor. And what do I mean by that? Unbelief is a limiting factor. Well, look at verses five and six again. It says Jesus could not do any miracles there. It's not because Jesus couldn't do any miracles. Like, you can't like stop Jesus. It's because of their unbelief, because of their, their total rejection of him that he could not help them. He couldn't do any miracles except lay his hands on a few sick people to help them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And so this lack of faith in Nazareth was a limiting factor in what Jesus could do for them by way of miracles. And this is a direct contrast with what just happened in chapter 5 when he healed uh, uh, the woman because of her faith in Christ. All she did is touch the hem of his robe and he's like, who healed me? Like, who did I heal? I felt power leave me. And she goes, I did. I just believed if I could touch the hem of your robe that I would be healed. So unbelief is a limiting factor. And when you live in a house divided, when you live in a house where not everyone believes, you are limited to what you can do for God. If there's only one believing parent, it's so much harder to raise a committed Christian children because there's only one parent. You're limited by, uh, by, uh, by unbelief. If there's, if there's a rebellious children in the home, it throws everything off balance. Like nothing is centered when that happens. Or when your parents don't believe, it's a, it's a challenge for you to keep growing in your faith. I, as a student pastor, I led so many kids to Christ and they would go back home to these unbelieving homes. And they would come to me and say, Rick, it's so hard to live out my faith. My own parents made fun of me for saying yes to Jesus. They said, I got religion. They said, it doesn't matter that I shouldn't believe in that stuff. And it's hard to live in a home where your parents are not believing. And what I would say to you, if any of those situations or others uh, pertain to you, is don't give up. That's what I tell students. I said, don't give up because God is with you. Remember, God is with you and he will help you in the midst of the challenges of sharing the gospel with your family. And it's interesting that we often read in Mark about other people being amazed at Jesus. But I believe there's only two times where Jesus was amazed. The one time was Jesus was amazed at a, uh, at a person's faith. And then there's this time where he's amazed at their unbelief. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief and their lack of faith, which is holding back the power of God to help them. Like they are resisting what God wants to do in their life. 
And so, yes, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to people, and it's hard enough to share the gospel with people outside of your home, but it's even more difficult to share the gospel with people right inside your home. And your family, because they know you best, they know and seen everything about you, and unbelief becomes this limiting factor. But I want you to hear this this morning. Don't give up because anything is possible with God. I want you to remember what we said last week, that God is way bigger and way more powerful than we give him credit for. We've got to remember that it may be impossible in our minds, but in God's world, nothing is impossible. God is bigger and better, and he can move in your home. He can move in your workplace. He can move in your friend's home. So I just want to give you two applications to kind of help you with this today. If this is you, if you're struggling because there are people in your home or people in your workplace or maybe your best friends are not believers and it's really hard to live out your faith with them, let me just give you two things. And the first one is this, live out your faith the best you can. Live out your faith at home. Live out your faith at your workplace. Live out your faith in your friend's life the best you can. You're like, well, Pastor Rick, how do I do that? Like, how do I live out my faith the best I can? Well, the first thing you do is you pray often. Pray often. Pray for everyone living in your home or your workplace or your friend's house. Pray often. Pray for their salvation. If they don't know Christ, pray that they would come to know Jesus. Uh, If they do know Christ, pray that they will grow spiritually. Like, pray for the other family members or pray for your other people around you that are Christians and that they will grow in their faith, but pray often. The second thing I would say to you is, is, is uh, set the example. Obviously, you can't share the gospel with your family every morning at the breakfast table. Like, meet quickly, your breakfast table will become just you. If you're constantly every morning say, hey, can I just tell you how to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? And you do that morning after morning after morning after morning. Nobody's going to be eating breakfast with you. Like, it's going to be you and Fruit Loops, and that's it. And so, but you can set the example. You can set the example with your life and your actions and by loving them deeply with the love of Christ and finding every opportunity to love them in ways that they don't deserve. So secondly, set the example. Third, share when appropriate. Just because you can't keep harping on the gospel doesn't mean that there won't be times when it's appropriate for you to bring it up. Tell your loved ones, hey, I'm praying for you uh, and and I'm praying uh, for you Day. Like I lifted you up in prayer today, like when they're eating their Cheerios. Hey, I just want you to know I prayed for you today uh, and, and let them know that. Remind them that God loves them. You're having dinner with them. Uh, you're watching TV with them. Hey, I just want you to know, you know, that reminds me, that story reminds me that God loves you. And I just want you to know that God loves you and he desires a relationship with you. So, so do that often, like share when appropriate. And then the fourth thing I want you to know is this, live in peace. Live in peace. Romans 8, or 12, 28 says, as far as it depends on you, live at what? Peace with everyone. And that especially means with your family. So don't be divisive. Don't be, don't be uh, the, the, the guy on the corner that's beating them down with the Bible. Don't be that person. But live at peace with them and find ways to encourage them and share and insert the love of God in their life. And, uh, and so that's the first thing. The first thing is simply to live out your faith at home the best you can. The second is this. Learn to live with the limits of unbelief. Learn to live with the limits of unbelief. It can be frustrating when there's unbelief in your home. I get it. 
and it cannot be all that you want it to be for God. Like you have a picture of what you want your, your, your home to look like. Maybe you're like, man, I just dream of my home where my family comes together and we pray together every night and, and we read the Bible together and we talk about God's word together, where we go out and do missions together, where we go and serve our neighborhood. Like that's how I want it to be. And so, but don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Learn to live with the limits. Do what you can and leave the rest up to God. Hey, if even Jesus was limited by the people's unbelief and what he could do in Nazareth, then you and I are also going to find unbelief a limiting factor at our home or our workplace or around our friends. So give it to God every day. God's big. God's gigantic. God has so much power and authority over us. So learn to give it to God and learn to live with the limits of unbelief. Because here's what I know from my own experiences, that God is bigger than our limits and he will empower and equip you to be his follower at home. He will. If you'll just want it and desire it and open your life up to it, he will empower you and he will equip you to be the follower that you need to be in your home, in your workplace, and among your friends. But you've got to trust that God is bigger than their unbelief. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that God is bigger than their unbelief? Do you trust that He will do the work that only He can do in his perfect timing. And the only thing that we need to do is be available and ready to be used. It's as simple as saying, hey, I had a pastor that said this every day to various people. Are you aware of the fact that God loves you? What would that be like to walk up to your friends, your coworkers and say, hey, I just, are you aware? fact that God loves you, even though you're stubborn, even though you act the way that you do, even in your unbelief, God loves you. So my prayer for us today, if you're here and you're living in a home divided, you're living in a workplace that's divided, you got friends that you're divided, my prayer for you today is to be aware of how big God is trust that God will work in his ways and that you just need to be available and open to being used by him. You got to step out sometimes. You got to face that they might reject Jesus. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And get over it and share the gospel when the time arises. Don't be a bully. I met so many Christian bullies. I'm like, I ain't got time for you. Don't be a Christian bully, but be a lover of God that loves God first and loves people just because of who they are and shares the gospel every chance they get. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you for this message in Mark that we kind of just kind of blow through. Like there's other stories we could be talking about today. Like there's so many good stories in here. We could have been talking about how Jesus cast out demons and had a whole conversation about that. God, we could have talked about how he raised this little girl to life and how amazing that was. 
But God, this, this is an amazing story that we just kind of blow through. That reminds us that you knew what it's like to be in a house divided. You knew what it was like to feel rejection. You knew what it was like for people that you were closest to to not believe the same things you believed in. But God, help us to remember that you're bigger than all that. And that you can move in our lives and you can empower and equip us to be there for our family, our friends, our coworkers in that right moment when they're ready to hear that there's a God that loves them, there's a God that cares about them, there's a God that wants a relationship with them. So God, may we be those people that trust you more than we trust ourselves and that listen and watch for those moments where we can be you in living flesh for the people that don't believe. God, we pray for a revival in our hearts. God, we're so excited about what's going on just a few miles down the road from us. Lord, my prayer, my prayer is that you would begin revival in the hearts of every person in this room. And Lord, what that means is that we would begin to seek you more than anything else, that we would chase after you more than we would chase after that job. We'd chase after you more than we'd chase after that relationship. We would chase after you more than we would chase after that extra dollar. We would chase after you else. Lord, would you start revival in our hearts today? And God, if there's someone in this room who has never said yes to you, God, that today would be the day that their dead life would be risen, would be risen up, that their sins would be forgiven, that they would be in a right relationship with you. God is so simple. You just say your word says if we will believe in our hearts and declare with our mouths that you are Lord, that we will be saved. So Father, I pray that for anyone in this room today, that if they are far from you, that today they would believe in their hearts and they would declare it with their mouths that you are Lord and Savior. And today would be the day that their sins would be forgiven, that today would be the day that they would experience freedom from sin, their chains would be broken would live a life of hope and purpose from here on out. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing a closing song, another 90s song. And I uh, just invite you to sing and worship with your hearts. And uh, as you come, I want to invite you, if you want to come and spend time in prayer, maybe you need to pray for some folks in your family that are not believing or friends or co-workers. You come and spend time in prayer. Maybe you want to come and just spend some time in confession. Maybe you want to come and spend some time not just in confession, but repentance. Whatever it is, these altars are for you. Nobody's going to judge you. If you don't want to come alone, grab the person next to you. Say, hey, we're going. Let's go. And come on up and spend time in prayer. But let's all sing with all of our hearts as we lift up our worship to the Lord. <laughs>